0: Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I wanted to let you know that today's episode comes with a Patreon-exclusive mini-episode attached. These new companion mini-episodes will be a regular feature, and you can hear them if you subscribe at patreon.com forward slash amic on the podium, as well as two brand new series of interviews, articles, group Zoom meetings, and a whole lot more. The details for this and other ways to support the podcast financially are in the show notes below. Just click on the link, subscribe, and join a whole group of fans helping to make this podcast possible. Today I conduct a conversation with a young British conductor who I've known since he was a tuba player in the CBSO Youth Orchestra. His career since winning the Nestle and Salzburg Young Conductors Award in 2013 has been highly successful and truly international including being Principal Guest Conductor with the BBC Philharmonic. It's a real pleasure to welcome Ben Jernan. Ben, wonderful to see you and speak to you today. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thank you very much. Um, I'm going to make our listeners aware that I've known you since you were knee-high to a cheaper player. Uh, you were 17 years old. And as a consequence, you were in my original batch of people I knew and, and I had contacts on my phone. Um, but at the time, you said, no, thank you. I'm going to just sort of take a sabbatical because of COVID and because of what had happened to our profession. Um, I tip my hat in your general direction for doing that and and also tip it again to say thank you for coming back on. But I wondered what made you have that decision and what the consequence of having six months doing not very much away from the music business and I think that's an important word rather than just music. Uh, What's it been like and how what made you decide to do that?
1: Well it's actually been amazing I think i reached the point where I've been just been working so much and so hard Um, I was stressed so much you know most of the time I just felt like I'd been run over by a bus (laughs) and I had um I had a pretty bad season last year with health I had Pneumonia in December, Oh dear. And so that, that really sort of knocked me. And I didn't quite appreciate actually that pneumonia takes ages to get over. Mm. Um, I felt really rubbish for a good six months actually. So when this time came, I just thought, I just couldn't take any more music to be honest with you. I was mm. just kind of so fed up with hopping around all over the place Um, and you know exactly what it's like you just have to turn up and be Mr Energy yes Um, and it's I just thought you know I need to just step away from this and you know what I feel so much more like me again yeah and much more human I have none of this kind of you know constant adrenaline going around um everything feels a lot calmer and it's kind of given me a new perspective on things actually and it's really given me the the opportunity just to sort of sit back and think about why I'm a conductor. Yes. You know, I've kind of been yeah. on this journey since, you know, just before I met you. you know, I remember the first time I met you, Mike, I was a pain in the ass. I was always saying, <laughs> you know, how, how can I be a conductor? What should I do? Um, and I haven't kind of got off that for a good, you know, 15, 16 years. And yeah. actually it's, I'm very grateful. And it's a crap situation, you know, in many respects, but it's been really good personally just to stop.
0: That's good. That's really good. I think you're you're right. You know, uh, perspectives have changed, and you know, I stopped. I stopped looking at scores As I was putting them back on the shelf. I didn't. Part of me thought, I, you know, maybe I should be using this time to learn an opera or learn a cycle of symphonies I didn't know, and I just didn't. Um, I didn't want to. I, I wasn't interested. Um, I ended up doing, you know, this podcast basically, um, which kept me because I love conducting but you know I wanted to talk about the actual act of conducting and what we do and how we think and all of that but actually physically sitting and learning scores I didn't want to do but I've conducted I conducted last week uh, the first CBSO concerts with a small audience and I'm conducting this week and actually I've I have loved learning the scores again quickly because I had to, but also just being in that rehearsal situation. But I feel like I'm a different conductor. I feel like I'm a lot cooler and calmer than I used to be before. And, you know, just even more being me. I don't know whether that's a consequence of listening to 60 conductors say, be yourself uh, in interview, or whether it's the whole package of just sitting and, and digesting what, what we have been doing, how we got there, and what was going to happen afterwards. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I feel a lot cooler and calmer now.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I think when you're on this constant wheel of work, it's quite tempting to say yes to almost everything, isn't it? Yeah. And then you end up doing a, you know, a huge amount of repertoire that you don't always have time to actually completely get on top of. No. So you're kind of jumping from survival to, oh, yes, I really want to conduct this piece this week. So there's this always sort of delicate balance of energy um that i think actually if you're not careful is often tipped against you rather than for Mm. you yeah
0: um
1: and i think as well i've kind of learned that once it's gone you know conducting went for me like you and everybody else you kind of go through a period of mourning in a way because it's you know this thing that you know that you love and you do and as when somebody else takes that decision for you you start really analysing, okay, why is it that I really like my job? What is it I want to achieve and how can I be better? And it just helped me really reframe everything. And I think I was also stuck on this mentality of, I'm a young conductor, I must be ticking this box, I must be doing this, I must be jumping to this opportunity, if I work with this orchestra, that will lead to that. And that's such bullshit. And I think that I've, you know, really sort of started to understand that, all of us conductors what we offer is unique to each and every one of us and actually there is absolutely no need to be competitive with each other and we all bring something completely different to the table and actually there's a comfort isn't there in kind of realizing this yeah, yeah there um, is, yeah. and knowing that actually this is my time on the podium with this orchestra and we're, we're going to do what I do with you and then that's a great thing.
0: Yeah, exactly. I agree. Um, it's funny the competitive element. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you're there's, there's you know over probably twenty years difference at least. You know, I was uh, before is thinking I'm fifty. I've got to do this. I've got to go. I'm gonna be fifty soon. I'm gonna. I've got to. I've got to get there. I've got to get an orchestra. Got somebody give me a job. You know, all of the sort of things that you think when you can hear the ticking of time, um, which you know you you may or may not do when you're pr- approached for around 50 years old. You, younger, you're thinking, right, I've got to go this, I've got to do that, I've got to be better than that. You've got... And, and it's so nice to just have a a control-out-delete moment, a reset, uh, and just, I, you know, I've come back and just thought, no, I'm I'm just going to have fun and enjoy music-making. And, you know, if, it, if things happen, great. If they don't, they don't. You know, that's just... I think it's
1: so much better, isn't it? Because otherwise you end up tactically conducting... You yes, know, you yeah. I'm gonna work with do. these yeah, five yeah, orchestras. Yeah, yeah. Make sure I take this repertoire. Yeah. And you know, actually it's more about what you want to do, actually, yeah. and what you can bring now, I think.
0: Well, we'll come back to guesting later and approaches and and whether you think your approach might change now after this, or you know, what we what we all think when we do guesting. Right now, I'm gonna find out about the the big from the beginning up until the time I met the young 16, 17-year-old Ben. How did music come into your life, um, musical family or not? uh, How did it start? Yeah, I did come from a kind of musical family.
1: My parents were both brass players. Mm. um, So brass bands were a big thing for me growing up. Um, My dad also did some conducting um, with the local brass bands. Um, And my mum was a music teacher um, at a special needs school. She played the trombone. Um, I remember that she taught me in year five of primary school which was horrendous um but she would make me play the piano in assembly so already at a young age I was playing piano and then nobody wanted to play the tuba in the local brass band so my dad came home with the tuba and said you're gonna learn this um and of course it was huge and I was tiny um and then I did loads of brass band stuff actually until I was about yeah, 16. Yeah. And my first introduction to a symphony orchestra was with the CBSO Youth Orchestra, yes. which is where we met. Yes.
0: Um,
1: and I remember just being, I always used to think that brass bands were the only you know, great thing. You know, I was totally indoctrinated mm. uh, by these people. Um, but I remember hearing an orchestra for the first time and I thought, God, that is really, it's amazing, isn't it, actually? the, the first time you appreciate the colour.
0: Yeah.
1: It's remarkable. Um, and then I just kind of decided I wanted to be a conductor at some point around <laughs> that. And my school teacher let me do some conducting at school. Um, and that, you know, it was really cheesy stuff, you know, like Pirates of the Caribbean and, and yeah. the EastEnders theme tune, you know, <laughs> with this really important repertoire. Yeah. Um, it was great, though, just to just to try and have a go at doing it, you know, at such yeah. a young age. And then off I went to the
0: Guildhall. Yeah. Yeah. Um- what was the repertoire on the CBSA Youth Orchestra? I can't quite remember. I know exactly what you conducted on the summer course though. But um what was the when you first played with the CBSA Youth Orchestra, what was that repertoire that suddenly made you go, hey, hang on a minute. Not everything is in the in the brass band world.
1: It was Stravinsky's Firebirds.
0: Oh, well there you are. Yeah. Um and who was I I would imagine I probably did all of the pre-rehearsals and they handed it over to yeah. who was conducting? Kind of, oh, it was Sachary, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, the whole thing was I remember actually I couldn't
1: read bass clef as I was playing on the orchestra because you know as a brass band tuba player you learn E flat treble clef Yes, yeah. um, and I remember you were so impressive because I was playing completely the wrong note and you just said tuba just a semitone lower and then it was perfect and I thought <laughs> Mike that's ridiculous that you could I mean it was right in the depth of the tuba as well and that you just knew straight away that it was the semitone I thought that was just so cool
0: Oh well I I'll take that compliment I don't always hear things like that <laughs> but I'll happily take that. Um and the other thing that that I remember because I think it was the very you were the very first person to do it in the very first summer course. For those listeners who don't know the CBC youth orchestra um came around because they they sort of took over or amalgamated with the Midland Youth Orchestra and so this this orchestra was started and then a few years later we decided it what or it was decided to add a summer academy, which was a chamber orchestra-sized thing, but we may have people come in, such as Ben on tuba or whatever. And one of the things of the summer academy is that we offer two sessions, two or three-hour sessions, for people to play through a concerto movement with their colleagues. So the principal cello might play the first movement to the Elgar, the leader might play a movement to Mozart, or you could conduct the orchestra. And the very first person to do it, I'm chatting to today, is Ben. And you conducted some Pulchinella, didn't you? Um, Stravinsky Pulchinella. I remember distinctly, because I remember him starting and me thinking, hey, hang on, if they're all as good as this, we're, we're in for a treat here. Um, well, frankly, they weren't all as good as Ben. But we did have a couple um, later on. Alpes Chohan, who's been on the podcast, and Jamie Phillips, that also did those those sessions and which then became masterclasses for them because they got um, another go and then another go um what was it like conducting your colleagues uh for the first? i mean i know you'd done it at school and probably done it in the brass band world uh and i you know i still do it now um what's it like conducting your your colleagues or were you so excited to be doing it that you didn't think about that at all
1: i think a bit of both actually um standing up in front of your friends is embarrassing anyway yes um but I think I was so excited to give it a go, mm. and I can't, I cringe a little bit actually, Mike, because you're very kind about it. But I also remember we had an opportunity to rehearse, didn't we? And yes, Of course, bit, I didn't yeah, have a yeah. clue what I was doing, and I remember just yelling at the winds intonation, and then you said, "Stop! What do you mean intonation?" I was like, "I don't know. It's just out of tune." <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I do cringe a little bit when I think about that. But it was so good to just stand
0: up and do it you know? but that that's what you know, going uh, as we're going to get to very soon you know going on to have conducting lessons and watch other people mm-hmm. rehearse you know there are going to be times when you want to say hey woodwind intonation because you don't know whether <laughs> who it is who's sharp or flat you just know that it's out of tune you the difference is you go to music college and you, somebody teaches you to say uh Woodwind just in the last five minutes, I'll finish the rehearsal early. Why don't you just sort through those chords there? So it's, it's a little bit out of tune, I'm, but I'm sure you'd rather do it without me or other such tactics that we <laughs> use um, <laughs> rather than air their dirty laundry in, in public. You know, you might want to do it at the end of a rehearsal. But the, that's what music college is for. But at the beginning, yeah, you just, all your, your ears are screaming to you, my God, it's out of tune. I have to say something. Hmm. And then you have to learn how to say it. Um, so yeah, but I do, I do remember that those sessions still happen to this day. Um, well, if the summer course had happened this year, of course, because of COVID, but it, it would have done. And I, and and what's important is that over the years, I've realised that it's not just important for the kids like you and Alpesh and Jamie, and for those who do their concerto movements. It's also really useful for the orchestra, especially when the when the conductors conduct and they're yeah, and you know if they just for the first time conducting and I basically give them a 30 minute lesson uh, and the orchestra realized why conductors do what they do, why that thing that that conductor's just done is a terrible idea, um, why they shouldn't do this, why they should do that. Uh, So it's really, the orchestra gets a lot out of it as well.
1: Yeah, I think it's really important, isn't it? Because players also need to learn how to respond to a conductor because otherwise, you know, what is the point in them being there if they're not kind of responding to what's going on in the middle? Um, But it's also good for us conductors as well to work out. Mm. You know, it works both ways, doesn't it? I mean, you know, it's a whole 360 approach, what you offer there. And another thing I'd love to say actually about the CBS Youth Orchestra is that it was the first time I'd ever been given a schedule and it was this (laughs) amazing, you know, thing where it was during half term or your holidays and you were given a proper orchestral schedule. And the whole thing just felt so professional. And the way we were spoken to, the way we were treated, it didn't feel like a youth orchestra at all, actually. It felt like a work experience or, you know, sort of this is what the job is like. It was amazing. It was really, really good.
0: Well, I, I think that was important, even for guest conductors. I remember Martin Brabin saying to me when he conducted that orchestra, he said, you know, Mike, I walked in and I was amazed. Well, I was approached by two men in suits like it was a normal gig with a CBS, <laughs> And then they showed me into the the orchestra and it was all done very professionally. I said, well, that's exactly why it, why it works. Um, let's go on. Music college. I'm assuming you went as a tuba player and then at some point things started to morph out away from the tuba.
1: Well, I went to the Guildhall School of Music mm. and Drama and I remember the first time I walked in, the Christmas tree was in the corner and there were some actors pushing each other around in a trolley and um, wearing <laughs> Christmas hats. And I thought, this really is the place I have to come. And I remember in my audition, actually, I said, I don't want to be a tuba player. I want to be a conductor. Um, and they must have thought what a precocious, horrible young man. Um, but I had Patrick Harold as the tuba teacher and he was incredibly sympathetic to the mm. cause actually. Um, I mean, he worked for me really hard as a tuba player, um, but he really took me under his wing. Yeah. And eventually he introduced me to Colin Davis and Sean Edwards. And then the whole connection that the Guildhall has with the London Symphony Orchestra, that opens up a wealth of opportunities even if it was shadowing the conductors or doing the conducting masterclasses or sitting in on the rehearsals, the whole experience was magical. And I was really lucky actually that at the time I was the only person who wanted to be a conductor. Yeah. So really, I mean, I just, I was also a pain in the bum and kept asking <laughs> for things all the time, but there was this great sort of moment where in a way you could do anything. There was no conducting cause. So right. it was just a case of just creating your own path and, yeah, there was so much going on there i am incredibly grateful for my time at the guild hall it was incredible
0: yeah. uh, i see there's a little bell ringing in my head because i know patrick's daughter uh, who's a cellist and she says that uh, patrick is a big score collector done, taken a lot of brass sectionals with youth and things like that so he probably gave you handy hints as a in in terms of conducting let alone just playing the tuba um Would I be right
1: in saying that? Yeah, the way he taught me the tuba was trying to teach me how to think as a conductor. Right. So instead of it just being, you know, you put valve one down and your tongue here, it was a case of how do you want the phrase to sound? How are you going to achieve that? And what's the bigger picture all the time? So he was already instilling in me this idea of just trying to be slightly more analytical. Yeah. Um, about things and thinking about things with sort of broader brush, if you like.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but yeah, he was—I mean, he was terrifying as a conductor. We would—we would be so nervous if he was conducting because he was so incredibly strict. Yeah. Um, and I also remember when um, Dennis Witt came to conduct us, and oh, we were—we yeah. were petrified. And I remember, <laughs> I—you know—typical student, I hadn't learned my part, and he—he he got so angry with me, and he turned to me and he said. There are some people in here that will never be a professional musician he looked straight at me and he was absolutely right of course i was never going to be a professional tube player. but <laughs> i just remember the whole I mean, you know we had all these great people conducting us um, you know, brass sectionals and um yeah there were so many conductors that i came across at the field yeah.
0: it's funny you mentioned dennis week because he conducted uh the first and second year orchestra at the conservatory when I, mean, I started in 1988 i think he was head of wind or head of brass um and did it? And conducted us for a year and because I was just a fiddle player and I had no idea who Dennis Wick was I wasn't frightened of him at all when, when I first sat in that, that first year orchestra but then when it became more and more apparent that yes he'd spent a long time in the LSO and, and yes you know um, I suddenly became more and more frightened of the man uh, he was only there a year and then Jonathan Delmar came after that It was a completely different character but yeah it's funny isn't it those early encounters with conductors and, uh, and what they say so, I'm assuming you finished you, your undergraduate course as Tuba and then went on to do a postgrad in conducting. And you mentioned Sean Edwards, so was it at the academy? No, no, not
1: at all. I did, um, it was called a fellowship year right. um, at the Guildhall. Again, that was kind of just them being very nice and saying, you can have a year here for free, yeah. take um, use all the resources, and we'll pay for a certain number of hours with Sean. And you see Sean whenever you want, and you see yeah. Colin and you know we'll let you conduct some of the orchestras. So again, great opportunity in London, surrounded by all these great orchestras and great people. And it was then that I started to branch out and do masterclasses. There used to be a lot more actually. Yeah. Um, like the Sinfonietta, the NSO. Um, and then I entered two competitions. Uh, the first one was the Donatello Flick
0: which was LSO-based again, isn't it? The exactly. Pri- the prize, well, the finals playing, uh, conducting the LSO, and the, the part of the prize is a two-year contractor's assistant conductor.
1: Yeah, and I remember, I mean, that was terrifying. Um I got to the final, and it was a shock to both me and Sean. Actually, I called Sean on the um, Saturday night, yes. and it was about eight o'clock in the evening. Actually, I said, um, "Sean, I've just got through to the final." She said, "Shit," <laughs> <laughs> um, because you know we'd both banked on you know that not happening. Yeah, um, and then all of a sudden, I had to conduct La Mer the next morning. Oh wow! I- <laughs> Quite, I mean, I really did feel like I was drowning. Yeah. Um, and says well, yeah. she sent me, you know, this very long email with tips on how to conduct it. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I learned a lot from being in that competition. It kind of showed me what you needed to do and what level you needed to be at. So I made a conscious effort for the rest of the fellowship to sort of get my head down yeah. um, and just really focus on the work I needed to do. And then entered the Salzburg Conductor Competition and that went really well in my favour.
0: Yes.
1: Then um, things kind of changed, you know, within a few days, actually.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. You know, the LA Phil offered me the Dudamel Fellowship. Um, that was when Aslan's Holt decided to represent me, and um, yeah,
0: it that's the kind of snowball moment, I suppose. That that's a, con- a competition that I'm not sure has come up on the podcast before, and actually, it is fresh in my mind because, uh, dear listeners, uh, we're recording this uh, in October, Thursday the twenty second. Um, And the next person to be released on Sunday would be Jonathan Hayward, who won a competition. And he and I talked a lot about the aftercare after he'd won the competition and the fact that he was assigned a person to look after him for that year to help him make the right decisions regarding uh, gigs to take on, gigs to maybe not take on, or just put off for a year or two, and especially man- take which manager that you, you might want to agree to sign to. Did any of that come after the Nestle-Salzburg competition? Uh, no. No, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Your face, <laughs> thinking... the, the, the listeners won't be, I can't see your face, but your face tells me, uh, definitely not.
1: <laughs> um, I have to say, actually, it would have been very nice because I was yeah. 23 when I won this competition. Yeah. And frankly, you don't know anything Mm-hmm. and you think you do actually um and i've made certain decisions particularly around my management um that i probably wouldn't make again and i suppose life's a learning curve isn't yeah it, actually? yeah and you have to go through these experiences um but i would have appreciated some more um sort of balanced advice around that point
0: yeah
1: um but you know in a way i threw myself into everything and you know, for those few years afterwards conducting was just all I ever thought about and yes. all I did and mm. um yeah, I learned a lot from that period actually. Wasn't wasn't all straightforward by any stretch. Oh,
0: sure. You know I I do happen to know that one constant, whether it was whether he was there all the time or whether you were seeing him every every couple of months or whatever else, from from the around the time you were starting with Patrick Harold and the LSO and Sean Edwards, all the way through until his, his sad Um, passing was Sir Colin Davis how did you first meet him what were the lessons like if they were lessons or were they more chats or you know what was he like did he have a style of teaching you you know anything technical or school study you know how was it it was
1: very confusing (laughs) (laughs) right, incredibly inspiring yeah and he is the sort of teacher that you're in his presence and you think I know I'm in something really special here but I can't quite work out what the message is and it's only over the years that it's finally starting to sort of make sense
0: yeah yeah
1: I would go around to his house I lived I was lodging around the corner actually um with a very old eccentric couple um who always had a poor musician on their top floor um for not much money in Islington and um he lived in Highbury fields and it's this wonderful house and yeah, I remember the first time knocking on the door, this huge door, and it felt like an age, you know, him coming down the stairs, I could hear some movement, and he opened the door, and he just like, come in, and I was, you know, just so, ah. Yes. Um, what did we talk about? We spoke a lot about Mozart. Yeah. Um, we spoke a lot about me feeling silly when I was conducting. I think I was very self-conscious. Right. Um, and I spoke to him a lot about how do you get yourself geared up for a concert? Um, Although I think he thought I was a bit silly asking that question. Um, But he was just so good at seeing a kind of holistic approach to conducting. He kind of spoke in riddles and he (laughs) didn't speak so much. Right. There was a lot of silence in our lessons, um, which inevitably makes you self-reflect very quickly. (laughs) Yes, that's true. Um, But I just, yeah, I think some of the things I took away from Colin were the more relaxed you are, the more positive the results um, I really admired his posture. Yeah. I thought on the podium it was incredible. He was so straight and everything just came from the back and this sweep sweep of his arm was you know you've never I say this all the time, but I've genuinely never heard the London Symphony Orchestra sound the way they sounded with Colin. Yeah. He had this extraordinary magic with the strings I really think um, I remember watching his rehearsals he really taught me this idea of respect. And trust. Yes. Now, this trust thing has got me into trouble. I mean, I've burnt myself a little bit <laughs> because, you know, I'm probably famous for not rehearsing very much. And, and that's something that, you know, there's a work in progress.
0: Um, well, and, I, you know, there, there are there orchestra musicians across the UK, maybe not else in other countries, who would probably praise you to the hilt for that. Um, because, you know, I used to be one for 20 odd years and, and seemingly conductors. Who let you go for a quarter of an hour early were, you know, more popular than than others. Whether you, whether what you did in the rehearsals was rubbish or not, some people just thought, well, he's, he's let me go fifteen minutes early. He must be good, you know. <laughs> but I take your point, you know. I, I uh, in early those early days, I because I knew that because I used to be one of those people, you know. I'd always think, oh, if I can let them off ten minutes early. Now the rehearsal runs its course. If that means I finished 35 minutes early or 35 seconds early, it doesn't matter, you know. The the rehearsal runs its course and it's finished when it's finished. Um, and, yeah, I think in those early days you do, you know, you do think that, don't you? Um, and you and it's learning when to trust, when a, when a human being's made a mistake or when it's something that needs rehearsing.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you don't always know that, actually, when you're 23, 24, 25, because, no. you know, often you're conducting these pieces for the first time. And often as well, you're doing pieces that are really well-known actually. Um, so part of you thinks, oh, okay, they all know this piece. But then what I've learned really is actually they want to know how you'd like, to like it done and actually yeah. what you're bringing to the party. I think I was too much of a kind of facilitator, if you like, mm, um, yeah, yeah. and it's only as I've got older that I've realized that actually developing an artistic vision or flair or interest in things is actually really fulfilling as a conductor too.
0: Well, you hadn't got much older when you were offered the chance of principal guest conductor at the BBC Philharmonic. One of the youngest people to get a a, a title position in the BBC Orchestra, or so I've read online this morning. Uh, Wikipedia must be right. (laughs) Um, How did that come about? And I know you have a wonderful relationship with them. It's an orchestra I've conducted many times and really enjoy working with. Um, How did that come about? And also, you make no bones about it because of your age at the time, how much did you lean on the experience of of people in the management there, such as Simon Webb, who was an ex-player, ex-cellist in the LPO, and then worked at the CBSO in the management, and then went on to BBC Philharmonic, and a great mind such as Mike George, the producer who's been around forever and one of the loveliest and wisest people you could speak to. Did you lean on them? how did it all come about, and what's what's it all been like?
1: I absolutely leaned on them and I still do actually. Mm. Um but to be in the middle of those two is is quite remarkable actually. Um I'm very grateful that Simon Webb took the chance on me because it is, you know, it's a risk appointing yeah. a young conductor. Um, and then Mike is very good at being very supportive behind the scenes and yeah. helping me just reevaluate things and look at performances and plan repertoire. He's he He's very good at deciding what I'm good at conducting um, <laughs> and what I shouldn't conduct. Yeah. Um, so it's really nice actually to have that kind of relationship because as a conductor you are essentially on your own, mm. um, and it's I you know I thrive working in a team to be honest. So it's nice to have you know such honest feedback and people to work with. Um, and but they, I mean it's ridiculous the amount of repertoire I've conducted with this orchestra yeah. is humongous, and I'm just I am very grateful that. I had this opportunity at such a young age to just really immerse myself in it. And, um, I think we fell in love. Yeah. Because we could kind of like risky performances
0: yeah.
1: and yeah. that was the kind of the way that we sort of got to really enjoy working with each other. Um, and then as time's gone on, I've become a better conductor, I hope. <laughs> and, um, you know, I can be more demanding and I can, you know, sort of grow a little bit in my presence as well. So the whole thing, you know, I've, they've definitely seen me through my nappy years and I'm now, you know, in the toddler phase. Yes. <laughs> uh, but I've, yeah, I've learned so much from them actually. And, you know, I, I still love working with them. I've, you know, finished with them now, but, you know, I still will hopefully go and see them a couple of times or yeah. who knows what the season's going to look like anyway now, but it's a very nice and open and, it's a good thing, actually, yeah. um, and I'm, yeah, I'm very proud of
0: that, actually. And there's some very open players there who, you know, you you can talk to about music making, about the orchestra, about rehearsing, and then quickly it can the subject can turn to, you know, a sport or a or something else. You don't get that feeling of them not wanting to sort of collaborate with you or work you out or to find out a bit about you. You know, they're, they're very sort of open and friendly in that regard. You know, there are people there I consider really good friends who. I only I never met through rehearsing them, you know. And you just think, well, next time I turn up, I know exactly what we can talk about. But we could also talk about the hard things, you know. We can talk about a problem of ensemble or a problem of color or tone, and they'll they'll happily discuss that as well as the, the latest football scores or whatever it might be. Um,
1: yeah, I think you're spot on with that analysis. Actually, I think they're a are a really strong family. Yeah, um, but you know when the red light goes on, that you've got everybody right behind you. I think yeah. it's. It's really special, actually.
0: Um, the, you did say something interesting about the fact that Mike George seems to know what music you would conduct well. And I'm, I'm, I'm not going to pick you up on it. I'm just going to slightly expand on that point. I think that most of the time we know that we conduct pieces well because of the results we get back. There's only occasionally there may be a piece that we love as a conductor, Possibly too much, and then you do a performance of it and think, you know what, that was actually a bit rubbish. Um, uh, and you know, I can think of two or three pieces that I conducted for the first time and thought, I love that piece, why was it so bad? Um, and then other pieces that you know, as a player, I didn't particularly used to love, but then as a conductor, I seem to conduct well. I think most of the time we do know what we conduct well, but now and again, you need a sounding board like Mike, don't you? Somebody who says, Look. You you conduct this stuff really well. Why don't you listen to this now and listen to that? And I, they're very good for that, aren't they? People like Mike George and Simon, and in my case, Stephen Maddock, and you know they're very helpful, aren't they?
1: Yeah, I mean we need these people. Well, I do anyway. I mean, I, can only well, speak I think to we them do. Yeah. yeah, and it's you know otherwise you just end up you know sort of navigating this mindful completely on your own. Mm. And you know I really appreciate it when somebody says Ben, that was pretty crap. Don't go near that piece again. Um, <laughs> I remember I conducted Marla One, actually, and I thought it had gone really well. <laughs> it was only last year, actually, I had dinner with Mike George and he said, I don't think that was your best work, Ben. <laughs> <one>. <laughs> but, you know, here, you know, that's a prime example of a piece that, yeah. you know, I, I love. And I was probably just, you know, floating a little bit on the surface and, you know, enjoying it for the piece, you know, sake. Yeah. And I think a healthy detachment sometimes from a piece just really helps, doesn't it? Because you really think, how do I make this work? Yes. Um, and pieces that you have to fall in love with, that you have to quickly get behind, in a way can be easier to rehearse, I think, because you have to try harder mm. um, to really like the material that's in front of you.
0: It's funny, it's funny um, Simon, uh, Simon Webb restored my faith in a piece of music because of, of, you know, of people talking to me after... I'll, I'll cut the story as short as possible, but I conducted Brahms 1, with the CBSO, and one of my dear friends came up to me at the end of the week or the start of the following week when I was back in playing. And he just walked past and said, Fair to say, I don't think Brahms is your composer, do you? And then just carried on walking. And I, it really hit me hard. And I thought, Well, I thought it was a really good week, actually. Anyway, many, many, many years later, Simon booked me to go to the BBC Philharmonic and conduct Brahms One. And I told him that exact story and told him who it was who said it. And Simon said, Well, just goes to show you shouldn't be trusting people like that he said I was at that performance it was amazing that's why I asked you to do Brahms 1 and you think oh and the weight was just lifted off my shoulders about Mm. one particular piece of music I loved or still love um and and all it had taken was a throwaway comment by a mate of mine and I I, I'd vowed never to conduct it again but here was Simon (laughs) we're bringing it back you know um and I think that's such an important role that managers can have in keeping a conductor's pecker up for want of a better phrase that you know that your your you, know, you know the world the weight of the world on the, this stuff we think so hard about it inside sometimes it's just nice for somebody to just give you a nice compliment and and you know it'll lift all of that pressure from within your head
1: definitely I think actually it, people don't always realize actually the processes that go on inside a conductor's head because yeah. I think you know from the outside it looks very straightforward you just turn up you know tell us what you want and go home But really, you know, we're always evaluating, aren't we? And I think that's the thing that can be quite destructive as a conductor are those moments when you've finished the session Mm. and, you know, you're on the train, you're going home, you're in the hotel room on your own. And you can definitely get into that dangerous mindset of overanalyzing. Or like you say, if somebody made a comment, Mm. you
0: can start thinking, why on earth did they make that comment? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. While we're in mm. the world of overanalyzing, let's go to guest conducting, shall we? <laughs> let's go to that world. Because you know, if if you can overanalyze people what's a throwaway comment a mate of yours said about a, a piece of repertoire, when you first walk into an orchestra for the first time, that's a place where we do overanalyze, and probably rightly so, because you know you you just want the week to work so that it's a good week for you, let alone them. Um, how are the early guesting, I'm assuming some of those early engagements were down to the Nestle competition winning, uh, but also down to being on the Dudamel Fellowship, um, and then of course as you go through and then you get a job like Principal Guest at the BBC Fellowship, more people get to hear about you, and you've conducted basically all over the world now, including opera, which we may just come to in a minute. But yeah, guesting, um, experiences, thoughts, um, and also now post your six months of batting or all of our six months off, what do you think is going to be different about guesting in the future
1: for you? Okay, well, I'll start with how I feel now. Yes, yeah. And I think going forward, I, I think I'd want to do less guest conducting.
0: Yeah.
1: And I think partly because it's kind of this unattainable ideal, guest conducting, because part of it is you know, you have to guest conduct for people to get to know you and get to know your work and to grow your career. But it's also something that you can never quite get right. Mm. And I think that's a really tricky thing, actually, because you're presented with an orchestra you don't know. You don't know what they like. You don't know how they rehearse. You don't know what they're used to. And this is where I think managers could be a lot more helpful, orchestra managers. Um, And, you know, if you just somebody just told you this is how the orchestra works, it would be really helpful. So when I look back um, to my early guest conducting experiences, um, some of them were really horrendous. Oh. Um, I remember particularly um, doing Eroica with the Scottish Chamber Orchestra. I didn't know what on earth I was doing. I remember being so nervous about this piece. And I yeah. Remember the month, even the month before doing it, I wasn't sleeping very well. I couldn't really, just, I just couldn't get into this piece at all. And I just had, such, it was such a combative time with me and the orchestra and they felt that I was over rehearsing it and of course I felt like I was learning it still um so that was kind of an odd time I also remember um a well-known orchestra in Wales I had a really awful time with them I mean to the point where the leader would just stop playing uh because they felt that I should be rehearsing something or but again, I was doing, you know, what, Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony and Dvorak Nine, and yeah, yeah. going on a tour. And, you know, I think possibly I was way too young for, to have been doing those things. But then at the same time, it was quite exciting to be hopping around. And I did a lot of work in Sweden and Copenhagen and Denmark and just all over the place, really. And in a way, it helps you grow as a conductor because yeah. you become less obsessed with all the kind of rubbish going on around you and you just focus on what you need to deliver. Um, but I think we just got to get to a point now where conductors shouldn't be traveling all over the world constantly, working with so many different conductors because A, I think it's exhausting. Yeah. And I don't think that as a conductor you can really offer your best when you know you, the night before you got off an easy jet, awful sweaty flights at ten thirty, <laughs> you know, got into your hotel room at one thirty, yeah. had an awful breakfast, and then here you're, you know, off we go,
0: Brahms two. Yeah, um, and that, you know, now and and everybody's sitting there going, well, go on then, be the greatest thing we've seen since the last, <laughs> you know, and, yeah, exactly, yeah, it's it, it can be really tough. Yeah, <laughs> I agree.
1: But I, Yeah, and I think. um What I really like now is um, just going back to the orchestras that I know, because there is already a level of trust. You don't have to do this stupid um, first date thing, you know, and in a way, don't you find as well when your guest conducts an orchestra, they don't really trust you until the concert's finished. So it's this kind of, I always feel like you're kind of just trying to convince everyone. And I mean, I know that sounds a little bit sticky, Mm. But it's you know how do you win an orchestra over really quickly, and how do you know how do you demonstrate that you know you're toting control and you know what well, you're doing. I mean,
0: I would argue personally that can you win them over? Just to you, to pick on the semantics of what you just said, um, I think the best approach is to, if is for you to be you and them to be them and, and if there's chemistry there and it it will work i i in the past at the beginning of my time conducting i did exactly try to win an orchestra over and i yeah. crashed and burned on a couple yeah. of occasions and after that i just decided look i'm just going to be me i'm going to conduct and rehearse the way i always do and the way that seems to work with my the orchestras that you call friends the people you go back to often There are enough orchestras on this planet, and there are enough conductors on this planet for that. For me to, if I'm any good at this, for there'll be there'll be enough orchestras to say, yeah, we'd like to see you again because we really like you. You know, if you don't like my way, well, then fine. There'll be somebody else's way that you will like, and you know. So I've stopped trying to win people over. If, if as a consequence of me being me, they are won over, brilliant. But I've stopped consciously trying to do it. I think Um, that's
1: amazing, and I think um. This is at the point I'm trying to get to myself.
0: Yeah, yeah. And
1: I, had, um, I was getting terribly nervous conducting, actually. And I had some sessions with a chap called Mike Cunningham, who's a performance psychologist. And we kind of unpacked why I was getting so nervous. And you know, I was constantly watching for people's reactions. Mm, was, don't I do I that.
0: Don't... <laughs> <laughs> it's, really,
1: it's really stupid, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> when you look at it rationally, you think, mm. Ben, what are you doing? Um, yeah. But, you know, he, like you just said, it was basically all about, you know, what you bring is unique and you've just got yeah. to get in your zone and then people will either follow you or they won't. But be happy with doing what you do. Yeah,
0: it's, it, I, love, I love that, you know, looking at people's reactions. You know, I, I've seen myself play the violin on, on the TV or on YouTube from the old days of when I played. And my yeah my, my my wife would say to me, why do you look so bloody miserable when you play the violin? And my you know my, basically my relaxed face was a resting bitch face when I played the fiddle. So if a conductor was looking at me, even if I had the utmost respect and loved everything that they said and did, I would probably look like I was an angry beast. And I think that's the your point. You know, you look at some people who. who Always smiling even if they're hating you inside and then and the vice versa yeah it's not it's not a good thing looking at looking at people's reactions <laughs> <laughs> oh you can get yourself into a lot of trouble doing that mm-hmm. <laughs> I've mentioned opera, and you've done some things at English National Opera, and as we've discussed on the podcast, these things take a lot more time than a normal guest conducting week, or even a set, you know a, a weeks or two with the BBC Philharmonic as principal guest. Do you enjoy the sort of more relaxed approach, uh, time wise, that an opera brings or gives you? Um, and going on from there, you know, are you are you interested in doing more opera? Um, Percentage-wise, in a year, uh, and uh, and would you ever be? Uh, maybe you have already done it. Would you ever be one of the types of conductors who would go in and do a a LabOM on a one-off on in the middle of every, you know the type of gigs I'm talking about where they they've got a, a one-night laboem in the middle of three months of laboems, and you can just go in and conduct it from the on the spot. Would that interest you, or are you much more interested in the whole approach of building a production from the start?
1: Well, I love conducting opera. I think it's one of my favourite things to do, actually.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I first started conducting opera at Glyndebourne, so I've been totally spoiled because, yeah. you know, here you are in beautiful Lewis with the best people around you, with the best singers, you know, the best orchestra. Um, and I love just actually taking the time um, to just put everything together. But, you know, you have four or five weeks with just you and the singers and the piano Um admittedly some of that time is quite boring you know when they're blocking things out Um, but it gives you this great opportunity to just be so close to the music and by the time the orchestra arrive you know it without the score Uh, and you know you can really just dive in and I kind of love the thrill of having an orchestra underground you know singers behaving very badly above ground (laughs) and you in the middle and just trying to coordinate the two I love the challenge and For me, the emotional side of that conducting is even more obvious and the storytelling is more obvious. So Mm. in a way, I find it easier to really sort of get into that world. Mm. Um, And yeah, I love, I would just love to conduct opera. I mean, my aim, you know, stupidly maybe would be to have an opera house one day. That would be my dream. Um, But yeah, in terms of your jumping in, in the middle of a run, I have done it once. Right. If I've done it twice, actually. Once with Don Giovanni at Glyndebourne, and that was terrifying because I'd never conducted Don Giovanni before. And the other one was in Stuttgart, and I'd never conducted Figaro before, and <laughs> just did it with no rehearsal. I yeah. don't recommend it. It's not particularly fun. Um, but, you know, I've been there and done that, worn the T-shirt, never yes. again. Oh,
0: well, there you are. Well, I've got the I've got an answer, which is good. Um, I agree with you about opera. I've done two different operatic projects at the Conservatory in Birmingham and just loved being in that immersive process from as early as possible in piano rehearsals. Sometimes I went to staging rehearsals as well and um with the pianist there so that we could get used to moving around and all of that sort of stuff right the way through to orchestra coming in and then the performances. I loved it. Um absolutely it's a change of pace. But as you say, you've got you've got time to learn and fall in love with a piece, which is much more you know, rather than the you know speed dating approach, this you just learn to bathe in this music for five six seven weeks um it's wonderful so yeah i'm with you more opera please (laughs) give give us more opera um the question i've asked everybody is about score preparation especially in your role with the BBC Philharmonic, because I know what BBC orchestras are like. You know, you, you're you a mixture of contemporary music, music that hasn't been played for 85 years, that sat in a, in a dusty old library, um, and also, you know, repertoire classics and, and bits of standard repertoire. How do you go about learning a piece? Do you start big and go into the details or start on page one and work your way through and also, are you a scribbler in your scores? Are you a user of coloured pencils like me? Or are you, like others, uh, What's some, a conductor who likes to keep their scores clean?
1: Right, well, I don't keep my scores clean. Um, <laughs> I need as much help as I can get in the moment. <laughs> so I'm colouring in my scores, I'm yeah. writing things in. Um, yeah, I write so much in my scores, actually. I've changed the way I approach school learning quite considerably, I had a lesson with Tony Papano hmm. um, at the Royal Opera House, and um, he was eating a kebab at the time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, was, yeah, oh, there's, was, now was, there's a, there's an image for me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so whilst he had doner meat round his cheeks, and he, his finger, he also had his Adidas tracksuit on. Oh and wow! So we were rehears- we were uh, learning um, the marriage of figure overture together. Yeah. Um, Because he actually saw me in the Donatello flick final because he was on the panel. He said, you need to come and see me because I'll teach you how to rehearse an orchestra. And the way he showed me to approach the score, and it's something that no one had ever done at this point, was just to be really analytical and really think about every line. He kept stopping me every two bars and he'd say, how do you want the second violins to play that? How do you want the cellos to play that? What dynamic are they? How are you going to balance those? So he taught me this very kind of cold but um, essential uh, very practical way of looking at a score. Mm. But I think combined with that, I think the first thing I do is just get through the score as quickly as possible, just to kind of see what's going on and what it's about. I love recordings. I'm not anti-recordings No, no I'm, I'm at you. all. Yeah. I think it's such a shame when people say they don't listen to recordings. Um, and I have to say online things like the Digital Concert Hall are amazing yeah. Yeah. Um, for us just to watch actually. Mm. Um, how, you know, one of the world's best orchestras might play these pieces. Um, But I've realised now for me to have good rehearsals, I have to have a very clear and kind of prescriptive idea in my head, even if I don't use it in the rehearsal. But I need to know really how I want every single little texture to be. And then conducting becomes fun. You know, it's not just about making shapes and it coming together. It's actually really about creating colours and textures. And yeah, that's been revelatory for me, actually. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, it's and, and therefore, because you're a writer of, of things in, like I am, you know, you will write little color things in, uh, even during a rehearsal and think, oh, I, that color is achieved by doing this, you know, even though you haven't thought of it. I also find the the process of writing in cues or thoughts on where the musical line might be with a system of arrows or whatever else, and my blue and red meaning what they mean helps me learn the music I remember writing things in over the page you know so you think well I know it's coming because I remember writing that in I remember writing that and the pencil snapping there or whatever it might be uh, it helps me learn it um for others you know I can think of one conductor who said write something in if I wrote something in, it means I haven't I haven't learned the music you know okay fine whatever that's your way um but yeah for me writing in helps uh, hmm. Yeah, I, I'm still. I can't get the image of Tony Papano in, in his um, Adidas slacks eating a kebab out of my head. <laughs> but but like, you're never going to forget that lesson, though, are you?
1: <laughs> oh no, I mean you know, quite. It was just the best lesson I'd ever had in a way as well. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was brilliant. It was, it was super. Yeah.
0: Ben, in the words of... No, I've forgotten her name, so I can't use that. <laughs> <I> can't, <laughs> can't use that. But The name went in and went straight out again. Um, <laughs> oh, dear. Ben, it's ten questions time, and in the words of Julie Andrews in a famous film, we shall start at number one, because it's a very good place to start. Uh, numbers one and two together. What sound or noise do you love, and what sound or noise do you hate?
1: I love the sounds of my dog's squeaky yawns and I hate oh, a, a nail on the car bonnet.
0: Oh, yeah. mm. yeah. My daughter last night during dinner scraped a fork across a plate, you know, mm. totally by mistake and we all went, yeah it's, yeah. It's just, yeah, it's one of those. Um, off the record, never had a dog's yawn before. That's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I love these questions. It's It's, it's funny and it's... If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing?
1: Well, I love reading, um, so I would probably wake up fairly early, go and have a great breakfast somewhere, a mm. really good cup of coffee, find somewhere quiet to read, go for a good walk, have a nice dinner, go for another walk, read again, go to bed.
0: Good. <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> That's fair enough. Oh, and as an aside, because it's not something we've talked about an awful lot, when you're away guesting, how are you eating on your own? Oh, I
1: can't stand it. No,
0: no, I can't
1: either.
0: I mean, I I, I don't read very often at all. The one time I do read is when I'm away on my own and I've got a book to read whilst I'm in the restaurant.
1: Um, Yeah, that's the biggest problem I have conducting away, actually. It's I hate the pressure to find dinner or lunch or... I just can't eat on my own. I hate, it. Mm.
0: It's only, I hate it's only, it. It's only when you go back to an orchestra for the third and fourth or fifth time that you, you begin to make acquaintances and friends within the orchestra exactly. or within the city. You know, every time I go to Buenos Aires now, mm. uh, I've been there about nine or ten times I, I rarely have to eat on my own. You know, yeah, <laughs> exactly. somebody yeah. will be ringing me up saying, "Oh, are you free yeah. tonight? Let's go and have a barbecue." Oh, you want yeah. me to go for a barbecue? In Buenos Aires, okay, very well. <laughs> and, <you> know, <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it, those early when you go the first time, it's oh. eating on your own is tough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, now before, who would be a favourite conductor of yesteryear?
1: Well, I'm going to say the obvious one for me, which is Sir Colin Davis. Um, but also Maris Janssen's. I remember watching him conduct Queen of Spades in Luxembourg with oh, the cool. and Rundfunk, and it was just incredible. I thought the atmospheres were just so good, and he made that orchestra play so quietly. Yeah. Just, just amazing.
0: Who would be a favourite current conductor?
1: Uh, <laughs> well, look, I have to say I love Sean Edwards because... Yeah. I think her technique is impeccable. I love her personality. She's so strong, but she's also so cool. Mm. Uh, I remember I go and see her for Silver Lessons and turning up once in Lewis and she was making a shed in the back garden. <laughs> uh, you know, she's just so cool. And, you know, she stands up in front of an orchestra and does great work. So yeah. I think for somebody who has a great combination of personality and ability, definitely Sean Edwards.
0: What is the hardest work you have ever conducted?
1: I would say that's definitely Beethoven's Eroica. Um, <laughs> because... For reasons you gave earlier. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, A, I had a dreadful time with it to begin with. Yeah. Um, but actually, B, it's just, it's, the scope of the piece is huge. And I think it takes a while to really understand your own Beethoven style and just trying to get everybody through that. I mean, it's a 50-minute symphony. Yeah. Um, and trying to get everyone right to the end in a really cohesive manner. It's only recently that i've kind of really started to understand it um but yeah that's been a huge challenge for me that
0: piece i remember sakura giving me a it wasn't really a lesson we just had a, a short discussion about it and i was picking his brains about it uh and in typical Sakari, cheeky way he said to me so mike first movement do you conduct it in one or in three and i just basically said well both actually, Zachary. And He said, "Yes, correct answer. Well done." He said, "I've seen some people conduct it all in three, and others conduct it all in one, and it neither approach works." He said, "You have to switch between the two, and what I've found, and maybe you agree with me, is when you're conducting in one, you think I ought to get into three soon, and then the minute you go into three, you think actually I ought to get back into one soon again. But if you don't, it doesn't work. You know, you're always flitting between the two um, hmm. to make a really successful." performance of it at a tempo that I like I I, yeah it it is a tricky tricky piece but one I uh, every time somebody asks me to do it I leap at the chance so yeah um next one when traveling abroad to conduct what item could you not leave home without okay this sounds ridiculous but um,
1: I have a pair of joggers. <laughs> 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 I mean, this is really ridiculous.
0: That, um, that lesson with Tony Papano really did hit home? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Who am I trying to
0: copy? Exactly. Um, yeah.
1: that I find, actually, it's so stupid, this, but when you're in the hotel room, you finish the rehearsal, pop your joggers on, you could just relax and slob out, uh-huh. and actually just having something that says you're no longer at work um, just really helps actually and you know yeah. I used to do used to do a bit of yoga so I think that's where it came from um but yeah I have my little comfort thing I think
0: yeah I, I, I don't think it's silly at all I think that you need some way of switching off and if it just means putting on an item of clothing or you know whatever it might be perfect what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor
1: the one thing I'd like to improve about being a conductor is having more contact with promoters and orchestra managers and people who look after the orchestras and decide what repertoire you're going to play, because I really love having a really close and strong
0: dialogue with these people. And often we don't, do we, because we have to go through the middle man or woman who's our agent. Uh, and that's sometimes because they're in a different country. We don't know these people. Uh, And maybe it's easier, isn't it, after we've been there and we've met them and then we've swapped contact details and they can come to you direct. But often in that, the first time we meet an orchestra, it's all done through the intermediary of our agency.
1: Yes, and it's it's obviously designed to help, you know, to protect us and help us sort of facilitate these conversations. But I actually really enjoy getting to know an orchestra properly via the person who runs the orchestra and then making a really... Um, interesting and informed decision about artistic plans
0: at this point ben and i then expanded on his answer and discussed the whole triangular relationship between conductor agent and orchestra management this 10-minute discussion is now available as a patreon exclusive mini episode available to all the subscribers on patreon if you want to hear this as well as other mini episodes and a whole new series of interviews with prominent figures from the classical music world head over to patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. Subscribe a monthly fee, which is less than the price of a decent glass of wine, and join the growing numbers of listeners who are enjoying this brand new content. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash a mic on the podium. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Um,
1: Emergency medicine. Definitely being a doctor. Yeah. Yeah, I would love love to do something really exciting and meaningful and yeah I always I was used to be obsessed with um what's that television program casualty when I was growing up and I loved all the blood and the gore and the running around and um so yeah put me in an accident emergency department as a consultant
0: and and even now with the sort of more fly on the wall fly on the wall version 24 hours in A&E do you watch that (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and you still want to do that job. Wow, that's, that's amazing. Ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink?
1: Well, I love eating really stodgy foods. Well, I'm Well on my way to type 2 diabetes. Um, <laughs> so I would love a good pie and chips and a jam roly-poly and maybe a quick shot of Highland Park. Oh, Um, lovely.
0: Yeah, I think. Oh, some proper English grub as well. And when you say pie, you mean it's not just a lid, it's got sides and a bottom as well, I hope. Oh, yeah, it's
1: like a proper pudding. Yeah, it's all about the pastry,
0: yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Ben, it's been a total joy. Um, Really, really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, I'm sure we'll see each other very, very soon. Um, Thank you, thank you. Well, thank you very
1: much. I mean, it's just so good to see you and speak to you and um thanks for everything you've done to
0: help me as well very kind (laughs) see you soon hopefully a mic on the podium was devised and produced by michael seal with music by ben dawson next time i chat with a young finnish conductor who is really making a name for herself in 2019 she was appointed as principal guest conductor of the bbc symphony orchestra And in 2020, she was announced as the next chief conductor of the Lati Symphony Orchestra, and she conducted the last night of the proms. Until then, bye-bye.